Hello and welcome to Can't Find My Way Home, the podcast where expats from around the globe talk about the music and art scene in their adopted home. I'm your host, Craig. In this episode of the podcast, I was joined by Chris Tharp. Chris is an American expat, originally from Seattle, and has been living in Busan, South Korea since 2004. We talk about what brought him to South Korea, obviously a plane, but the other stuff too, his past life as a revolutionary theatre artist and the adventures of starting out in a new country from scratch. Moving to another continent to live and work, we hear how Chris was eager to adopt the trappings of a young traveller and to soak it all up, something akin to what Anthony Bourdain became known for. We talk a little about that too. We get into how Chris started blogging in the early years, writing for local magazines, getting into travel writing, and gradually building up a following in the days before social media really took over. He also gives us some good advice on what to do to gain exposure for your work. Alongside Brian Aylward, Chris was at the forefront of bringing stand-up to a group-orientated culture. He recounts how the stand-up comedy scene in South Korea, and Busan in particular, evolved over the years. We talk dodgy promoters chasing your dinner around the plate and why moving to South Korea is a bit like entering the Witness Protection Program. Without further ado, Chris Tharp. Joining me today on Can't Find My Way Home is Chris Tharp. Hello, it's good to be here. Chris, today we're going to talk about a little bit about a lot of things, I think, but let's start off with your <laughs> expat journey and how did it start for you? I was back, I'm from the United States, I'm from Seattle, and I finished college in 1995. Yes, I'm that old. And I started a, a, a theater group in Seattle with, uh, there's four of us from my college, and we started this kind of experimental avant-garde theater and comedy group. We did these crazy shows in rock clubs with bands, and then we do shows in theaters and featuring lots of blood and, and huge stunt spewing penises and you know white trash characters and drag it was kind of like a really methed out american monty python i suppose <laughs> uh, we were called piece of meat theater and we um we did pretty well in seattle we got kind of a nice cult following over the years and we wrote all our own material it was all original and i also got involved doing improv comedy in 1993 for unexpected productions which is the big improv comedy theater in seattle and the biggest theater in the northwest that does that and that was a professional gig you know i got paid for that which was cool and so i did that in seattle and kind of living the life of a revolutionary theater artist and um but we decided my group piece to me in right at the end of 1999 we decided to go to la to try to uh stake our claim, you know, get our the development deal. And all that, eh? Yeah, you know, we wanted to, at the very least, uh, sell some scripts because we wrote a lot of scripts. But, you know, the big the big goal was to, you know, get a deal as like a, a comedy show, you know, on Comedy Central or whatever. And so mm. we went down there and toiled away and we did okay. We did a lot of shows and, you know, we got some people came sniffing around from the industry and all that. But uh, in the end, we weren't really TV ready and, uh, and I burned out on that and went back to Seattle for a while and then spent a few months in Chicago as a guitar player for an industrial band. <laughs> and we toured the Midwest and the country. And then um, one of the, my buddy in the band who kind of lured me to Chicago had a nervous breakdown. And then I was back in my hometown with a girl and that went south. And I was staying with my parents and working in a warehouse. And I, you know, I just kind of reached a dead end in my creative life. And I was broke, 33 years old. And, uh, but 
when I was in Chicago, I, I'd spent the winter there alone because my buddy had, like I said, had had his breakdown and he just left me alone there. So I didn't know anybody. And Chicago was a cool city. I used to walk around, you know, as great architecture. It's one of the real American cities and the birthplace of the skyscraper and, you know, Frank Lloyd Wright mm. architecture and all that. So, but my mind was elsewhere. I really wanted to my mind was thinking internationally. So I would go to the Chicago Public Library and check out all the travel books I could. So I spent just hours and hours in this little sublet apartment I had just reading travel books, doing being an armchair traveling, just go, traveler, you know, going to wherever, Europe and Africa and Asia. So I decided that I wanted to, uh, that I needed to have a change, either go to grad school or somehow get out of the country for a while. So I was scouring ads on Craigslist back in my hometown of Olympia after Chicago. Yeah. And I saw an ad. It said, come teach English in South Korea. All, all you need is a bachelor's degree and a pulse. And so I had both. <laughs> and, um, and I'd known a couple people that had come to Asia in the nineties, had come to Japan and also Korea. And so I knew that this was a possibility kind of in the back of my mind that, you know, I could maybe go work in Asia for a little bit. They'll pay you some money. You know, I sent in my resume to this recruiter and three days later, I was on the phone interviewing and they hired me the next day. And then two weeks later, I was on a plane to Korea and I landed in Busan and it was in the middle of the summer and I had a place next to the beach and the whole country of Korea parties, you know, basically in Hyundai Beach in Busan in the summer. So it was, all, you know, bars are popping and everything's going off. I got a brand new set of friends, got a girlfriend the first week. I started working with this little language academy, but it was like funded by a big corporation. So they had money and they paid us on time. I had this little studio apartment, you know, I was teaching kids. It was, wasn't like loading trucks. It was long hours, but it was, you know, I'm just singing songs and, and reading books, you know, didn't feel like work to me. I was like, fuck yeah, I like it here. And uh, I think I'll stay for a while. And then, you know, I got a job at a university the next year, like right away, kind of as a fluke, just lucked into it. I've been here ever since and started writing, started, kept, started a blog, like my first two weeks in the country, which led to other things and other things. And here I am 15 years later, almost 16 years later, actually, married, still teaching at a university and, and writing and having a good time. So that's how it all started. So during, during that whole period of time, you've seen all the changes then going from yeah. uh, this would be after the World Cup. So it was 2004 you, you arrived in South Korea? Yeah, I, I came here still. Korea was still in the, a bit of the glow of the World Cup, but I, I wasn't here for that. 2004, kind of any anti-Americanism seemed to have calmed down. I'd heard about it, but I, I certainly didn't see anything overt. You know, maybe I didn't speak any Korean at the time, so maybe people... <laughs> said things behind my back but you're I just like know. yeah fine you know <laughs> <It's not laughs> right? you're know, like cool yeah sure yeah because i because i moved to korea without i mean i knew about the korean war pretty well i'd read up on that and of course i'd watch mash which was 11 years in the korean war Did you know mash the show yeah of course Did you yeah, ever get yeah. it alan yeah, alda and, and whoever else i forget suicide is painless right yeah but i didn't really know much about about yeah the song suicide is painless and based on the altman movie but korean culture i didn't really know much about other than it was kind of jap like, a little bit like japanese but they hated the japanese and i didn't speak any of the language like i stepped off the plane without a single word i, I couldn't say onionaso i couldn't kansamira i mean like literally a blank slate a baby when i walked off the plane here and then you get to deal with the chopsticks, right? So, you know, the metal chopsticks. We should. Yeah, yeah, because I, yeah, I thought I was, oh, chopsticks, 
chopsticks, no problem, because I'd use the little light, you know, wooden ones. And then these metal chopsticks are 10 times as heavy. <laughs> <laughs> go, go chase your dinner, right? That's basically what yeah. they tell you. They'll take you for dinner, yeah. but the deal is we'll, we'll laugh at you chasing it around the plate. You know? Yeah, yeah, it was tough. It took a, a little getting used to. But, I mean, sometimes you get the fork. And even, even like about once a year, I'll still get the fork. And I get kind of offended by it, like a microaggression. You know, I'm sitting there eating, and I just go down to eat, and somebody, then silently, they just place a fork by me, like my wife or any Koreans I'm with. You don't give them the fork. You give me the fork. I feel like Larry David having a meltdown. <laughs> yeah, I kind of miss that actually from time to time. You know, I don't get that here yeah. in Germany, right? No fork, nothing. No. Just get you don't get a smile, nothing. Just like here, you know. No. Just deal yeah. with it. How, did, how about your, your background then? So when you landed in, in Busan, what did you think about, you know, the things that you'd done in the past with your theatre background and your performing background? Did you, were you really burned out in the sense that you didn't want to do anything else with it when you landed? Just start again and then see what, you know, gradually build it up again? Or were you quite open to new things? Yeah, you know, I definitely had burned out on performance. I mean, I had done so much of it in the 90s. It's, you know, every weekend with the improv group and, and piece of meat, we were just riding and doing it all the time. So when I got here, it was kind of nice not being known for that and not having to do it. For a year, I just taught English and drank a lot of beer and ran around and, you know, and, and got a motorcycle. You know, I was very eager to sort of adopt the trappings of this eager young traveler and to soak it all up and to to eat all the crazy food. And this, it's kind of funny because obviously, you know, the person who came came to really sort of embody this is Anthony Bourdain. But I, I was kind of familiar with Bourdain. I didn't read the book, his book, Kitchen Confidential, but there was one thing that, that I he kind of inspired me. And this was, I was back living in LA before I'd come to Korea and I was watching, it was the first TV thing he had ever done. And he was, he was in Cambodia with his French buddy the other chef and they were touring around cambodia just eating all the crazy food with the camera in tow and they were on a tonle sap lake the big lake lake there on a boat and they just roll up to this houseboat and there's a woman on the houseboat and i've been in this houseboat village since and she's just there frying up a pan full of fish like from the lake and with peppers and onions and garlic and they just roll up and they're like hey can we eat some of your food and she's in the camera and they probably said, here, we'll give you a little money. Of course, you're going to be on camera. And she, she's sure. And they, they just sat there and they're eating this food on this houseboat in this lake in Cambodia. And to me, it was one of the most punk rock things I'd ever seen. Because, you know, we had this such, I had grown up with such a fear of getting sick from foreign food, and you know, in the state. You know, it was just so removed and kind of taboo. Oh, you'd never do that. And these guys are like, yeah, it's no problem. We're going to go. The worst that's going to happen is maybe we get some diarrhea. <laughs> and so I remember watching this episode and they go to the markets in Phnom Penh and they're eating all sorts of crazy stuff. And, and I remember thinking, I want to do that. I want to go somewhere nuts, somewhere far away and just kind of drink it all in. And so when I came to Busan, that was kind of in the back of my mind. So I was fine not doing plays or performing, even though I started doing some of that later on. I was more than happy just to kind of be here. And, just uh, go and explore some yeah. new things. Yeah? yeah, it was all new to me. Everything was new. The language, the food. It was just, it was the most excited I'd ever been in my life that first year. It was just, you know, it blew my mind. And it was in every day, I don't know, maybe the, the dopamine levels that, that that shoots off. Oh, wow, look at this. And, you know, and I was, I would eat, the, my second day in the country, I went to a, 
a nachi volcan place, which is a the spicy octopus they do mm. here, the little, little kind of medium-sized octopus. You know, I didn't know what I was doing, but I just saw a little cute picture of an octopus in this market. You know, I'm like, okay, that looks interesting. I walk in and everybody's sitting at these tables with these pans of bubbling red sauce and octopus. And I just sat down and pointed to one of the, you know, the guy next to me and said, give me that and said, give me a beer. And it was like, it was August and 35 degrees, like 90 something degrees in, in uh, American. <laughs> and humid. The humidity and is really, you're just. Yeah. And sweat's pouring down my face and I'm eating and it's so spicy and so good. And I'm drinking this ice cold beer. All the old ladies are peering out from behind the kitchen looking at me because I think I was probably the first white guy to ever walk in the restaurant. They're laughing their asses off because I'm just pouring sweat. You know, and that to me was the essence of it. I realized then, that was my second day in the country, that, wow, this is, a, this is where I want to be uh, right now. And definitely not look back. No, I didn't. I had reached a point in the States where I didn't want to be there anymore. Like, just, you know, I was poor. You know, I was a, I was a failure. I was a loser. There, there's this uh, the trope of the loser who couldn't hack it at home coming to teach English in Korea. And, and I will admit that was me to a degree. Now, I had tried to d do some cool things and I had succeeded, you know, written a bunch of plays and performed and I used to get recognized in Seattle as a performer, you know, so I mean, I for a while I felt kind of like hot shit, but in the, yeah. in the end it didn't mean it didn't mean anything. I didn't have any money. I didn't have anything. So when I came to Korea, I mean, I was at the end of my rope to a degree. I was looking for something new. And so I kind of felt like I had entered the witness protection program. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, they gave me a bag with a brand new life, you know. Yeah, it's certainly an interesting place to do it. Yeah, they won't come looking for you there, you know, in the back streets of Busan. No, and uh, it kind of, it did allow me to reinvent myself, which uh, was good. What would you say the next step was as when you really... Um, maybe we talk about your writing. Let's let's focus on that first. You you said you kind of started a blog pretty much the first couple of weeks when you arrived. Yeah, my first week. I think it it may have been just a couple days in. I think I remember. I remember my first entry because blogs were kind of new at this time too. I guess in the late '90s they they started. You know, I'm like, what's a blog? I don't know what that is because I had started doing this kind of writing in the States, like when I went on tour with the band, I was just doing kind of writing about all the towns we went through in the cities and like kind, kind of, of general, right? literally just writing. Yeah. That. yeah. But also, also like for an audience as kind of a, because as a performer, I kind of, I, I tried to bring that to my writing. I'm like, okay, let's make this entertaining. Yeah. Uh, and so I did these, we, you know, we'd be in like Pittsburgh or New York city or Jacksonville, Florida, and and often and often these were terrible places that I would just make fun of, and so I I did these missives, and sent them out as group emails, you know. And then when I got here, somebody said, well, you know, you could just do blogs. There's a thing called a blog you could do, and I'm like, oh, cool. So I started doing that on Live Journal, which was um, which is a blog platform, and also a um, it also was kind of a proto social media platform. You could friend other people, and you had a kind of a handle and an avatar. So it was like a pre sort of Facebook sort of thing, but you also blogged. So I started writing about Korea, just my life here and uh, everything I could. And also, you know, I would just drink and get confessional and I would make fun of things. And uh, over the year, it, it kind of began to grow. I got, uh, it never was like huge, but I definitely had a cult following. I had a loyal 
group of readers, friends and family. And then a lot of people who were, this was before Facebook and before there was a lot of information, people who wanted to come to Korea and teach, they would Google that and, you know, maybe my blog would come up. So I started getting right. readers based on that. And definitely um, getting a bit more of a real life perspective than the, the hag one owner kind of, you know, semi-corporate answers. You're getting a bit more insightful and a bit more real what it's, what it's really. Yeah. Like. And also my blog, what, you know, I, I, I had a kind of really raw, honest sort of style. That's kind of what, how I like to write. I tried to make it funny. And it, and it was kind of dark and, you know, snarky and sarcastic. So there were, there were, I mean, pretty much everybody from the early 2000s who moved to Korea, you know, nine out of 10 had some kind of blog, but most of them tended to be these kind of, these kind of starry eyed, oh, I went to a temple and it was amazing. <laughs> you know, uh, I, uh, we went in a, a rice cake, we went to a rice cake factory and do you know Korea has the rice cake? I mean, they were often these- It was a bit too twee. Yeah, I mean, like maybe these, you know, like a 23 year old dopey Canadian girl who just got here for the first time and everything's wonderful. And, you know, and mine was a little more caustic and, um, and raw. And I think some people, some people like that. You know, other people just thought it was the ramblings of an alcoholic. But. <laughs> and what was the next step for your writing? And so it was the the live journal things. And then how did that build up? Were you getting, uh, did anyone pick up your work? Or was, was there other mediums that came into play with the advent of Facebook? Yeah, I guess. I mean, this is Facebook. I didn't get on Facebook till about 2008. I think Facebook kind of landed in 2007. So this is 2004. I was doing live journal. And then, yeah, at some point, a... A guy named Bobby McGill, who was a, used to be a journalist in the States, he was teaching here as well. He used to live in my building. He started a magazine in Busan called Busan Haps. It, at first, it was just a little pamphlet of what to do, you know, where to get a burger, or, you know, kind of a general information. He envisioned it as kind of a glorified airline magazine. But that kind of got bigger and more professional. And I was in the first issue of that. And he, so he gave me a column. I had a column called Tharp on my last name's Tharp. And I, so I would just write about just, you know, I'd write about drinking or I'd write about the seasons or, you know, or food, you know, I'd have, I had, had a column and it was a humor column. So I guess that might've been my first thing. And then I started, I started submitting some pieces. I did a couple of pieces for Matador Network, which is a travel website that does kind of short, short form pieces, but they'd pay you 25 bucks, which wasn't much, but I mean, at least you could get paid and it was kind of professional looking and, you know, you, I, you get thousands of hits. Then I got picked up by a, a website in the States called Monkey Goggles that also did kind of humorous essays and uh, they paid me a little bit. So suddenly I'm kind of getting these little little pops. And then I guess the the next, the biggest step from that was there was a guy who was living here who was a writer who he, who he had published several books and he was my live journal friend. Yeah. He, he had like two or three books under his belt, uh, mainly in the, in the genre of gay erotic. He's a gay guy, but, um, but you know, he was like well-known in that field, but he'd also done short stories and more straight lit. And he moved to Hong Kong and he started an independent press and he contacted me right when he was starting the press. And based off those first like two years of blogs, he said, why don't you take some of those and also expand on it and, and do a Korea book, do a memoir about your life in Korea with information for people who want to live there and also your. So I did that and that, that was published in, uh, I think it was published in 2011, I guess. Yeah, maybe it, has it been that long ago? Yeah, it was. But it was several years in the writing. And also by that time, my father had died and my mother had died uh, within a year of each other. My parents were in poor health when I moved here. And uh, then their health just 
slipped and they both died within the course of a year. So I had to deal with that, which ended up being kind of the core of the book, which, I mean, I guess it gave the book a little more gravitas than just some expat drinking his way around Korea. You know, I had to deal with something serious. So he published the book that his company Signalate pressed out of Hong Kong and, and the book did pretty well. I mean, it wasn't huge. It, I think to date, it, it's still one of their best sellers because it, it was put out right at the time, maybe 2009, 2010, 2011, a lot of people were coming here. But in Busan, we were awash in teachers and that's kind of what I call the high watermark. There were loads of musicians in town. There were, I mean, there must've been like 10 different, like what you might call foreigner bars going and they were yeah. just packed all the time. People were going out, they were partying. You just, I mean, it was just really, it was thumping really hard. So I think my book was timed pretty well because a lot of people when they're coming over, they're like, oh, you know, they look online, but uh, I think a lot of people bought the book. Or, oh, here's, we can read the book before coming to Korea. And so I would get people who come up to me in the bar. Oh, you wrote that book? I'm like, yeah, oh, dude, <laughs> <laughs> got a few beers. No, 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 that's fair enough, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Getting paid in yeah. bad thing, yeah? yeah, because I still never got that much money from it. <laughs> no, we never do, right? <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, writing's tough to get paid for, dude. It's, is, it's yeah. like the writer is, I mean, it, since the days of Hollywood and, it's, and especially now with the kind of the death of publishing, nobody wants to fucking pay a writer. And that's eventually why I quit Busan Haps magazine because they were selling ad space and they started doing really well. They were selling, you know, the, the Hilton and, you know, Park High, all the hotels and Lufthansa was at, was taking full page ads. Uh, you know, they had all the expat bars were buying ad space. So they had revenue every month, but you know, I kept saying, Hey, you guys got to pay your writers. You got to pay us something. We're giving you content. Yeah, and they right. just refuse. They dragged their feet. Hum, tud, well, no, we can't. And they just refused to pay their writers. They wouldn't do it. And finally, I, I told them to go fuck themselves because uh, if if you're charging, it's like it's like if I'm a performer at, at your theater and you're charging money for people to get in the door, and, and you've refused to pay me anything. It's just not right. It, and I, and those guys, Bobby McGill, who was the editor in chief, and. Uh, Jeff Liebsch and, and even uh, Michael Schneider, who was their business manager, who probably <laughs> was the guy nixing my payment. You know, I'm still friendly with all those guys. It's not any bad blood, but, you know, I had to, at one point, I just, after years, I had to say, you guys, if you refuse to pay me, I'm not going to write for you. It's a point of principle, you know, it's the old bad yeah, age is. as well, right? If you, yeah. if you if you hire someone to pay, uh, to play in your bar, then you know yeah. you've got to look after them. It's it's like if you have a broken uh, pipe in your bathroom, you're not going to just ask the plumber to turn up and uh, you know. Okay, sorry, buddy, can you do me a favor? You know, I'm a bit short this week, but uh, we'll give you. A and I get what you know? I get when you're a young writer or you're just starting out. If it's or sometimes it's a bigger platform. I mean, the idea of never working for exposure. I mean, it, it's not that I I would say never do that. If it's worth your while, I would say to younger writers if it's really going to amplify your platform, you know, do a few free freebies, but years in and years out uh, for a magazine that's uh, selling ads that refuses to pay you. Well, that's, you're kind you of taking the piss a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, it, absolutely. You're having a laugh. Moving on from that. What about the stand-up comedy scene? How did that all come about? Because I think the second episode, the third episode, one of the early episodes I did of the podcast, I spoke with our friend Brian Aylward. Oh, shit, yeah. Yeah, well, that's how it, I, it, it started with Brian. Well, I mean, 
Well, I started before even Brian was here. I'll, I'll take credit. Brian, you're going to steal it from him. Okay. Brian's one of my best friends in the world. No, I will give Brian credit for really starting the scene in Korea. But I was doing stand-up comedy in Korea before Brian even arrived here. <laughs> I, I talked to Brian all the time. I, just last week, we had it. We talked for about two hours. Uh, he's he's living in Thailand. He was sitting in a pool drinking beer, laughing his ass off. I think but, that was the last time I spoke to him as well. It was just before the lockdown, or maybe just started. But yeah, it was run about then. It was a while ago, but. Um, I came here in 2004, and so in Busan, um, there were still limited opportunities for any kind of performance. Uh, there was like one or two bands that were playing, and there was a couple clubs where they would play. And then it was, it was like every Saturday there'd be the band, and there was like two of them. It was like a funk band, and then a, like a really bad like alternative music cover band. But the funk band was really good. And there was like a Korean Beatles band that was pretty good. So you go there, the band would play, you drink a few beers, and then, then the DJ had come in, and then it was, you know, and it was sweaty dancing and girls and all that, which was fun. But there in Busan, I think it started in 2000, before I came here, there was a thing called Poetry Plus, and, it, uh, and they still do it sometimes. It's changed, but it was just a variety show. It's basically an open mic, and uh, Ken May, who, who's the founder and st still runs it, um, uh, would open up. It was just an open performance. I, I think you you had to come early and sign up or send a message if you wanted to perform. And they called it Poetry Plus. Originally, it was people reading poetry and they're writing and then some musicians would do things and there was like interpretive dancers. It was very sort of, but everything sort of was on the very like arty side. You know, mm -hmm. it was very precious. It tended to be very precious from what I knew. <laughs> and so... Uh, yeah, so it's 2004, and I'm in the, I think it was November, and I'd come in maybe in August. So I'd been here a bit, and they, so they did the first Poetry Plus since I had arrived. So I, I showed up that night, and I'm like, hey, I'm, I want to do some comedy, because I just started doing stand-up. Uh, in the States, I had done it in L.A. for a couple years. I had done a lot of improv comedy and crazy theatrical comedy, but stand-up was something I hadn't done a lot of. But then I, when I went to L.A. for about two years, I did it there on the kind of the bottom feeder circuit and I'll, you know, I used to do shows at a laundromat. I mean, just cafes, uh, um, all over the place. So I cut my teeth and I, I, I got a set after a couple of years. And, but then I came to Korea and there's no stand-up comedy here, but there was poetry plus. So I go up and so that, you know, it's like a people reading very serious poetry and then, Hey, ladies and gentlemen, here's some ha ha yuck yucks with Chris Tharp. And I get up there <laughs> And I had written some very silly Korea-based jokes, and it did pretty well. People laughed. I'm like, yeah, okay. Had a pretty solid set. So then over the course of the next year, I went up a couple more times. And then, you know, a few months later, I went up, and I think I offended all these women. and Because I, I was younger and, like, edgier at the time and kind of crossing lines that I probably shouldn't have crossed. I had some jokes that I would never do these days. And then I did another set that did really well. But then after about three times no one else was doing comedy it was still just me i so i i hung up the comedy hat you know i used to i was the only comedian in town and i used to say doing comedy in busan is like being the best cricket player in tijuana you know it's <laughs> like it's, no there's no uh, you know there's no use you're the only one so i stopped doing stand-up because if you're just if you're the only guy doing it, it you need you need a scene for stand-up you need some other fuckers doing it so 
fast forward to, I don't know, 2009, 2008, 2009. Um, I see... I think at this time, up in Seoul, they had a couple magazines. They had 10 magazine. We had and Groove what was the other magazine. One? Groove, Groove and 10. And I think it was Groove did an article on Brian. And it's like, oh, stand-up comedy. And I'm so I'm like, what? They have an open mic. And I didn't even know about this. And so I read this article. They interviewed this big, you know, scary-looking bald. <laughs> he, is, he is somewhat recognizable. Yeah, let's put it that way. Yeah, no, it looks like a barbarian. <laughs> and uh, that's what he used to say. Like, I'm barbarian teacher. Right. <laughs> they used to do a thing in, in Hebanchan. Hebangchon? Is that what you say? Near Ite. Hebangchon. Okay, Chun, uh, Hebangchon. Which is the kind of neighborhood next to the base near Itaewon, which is now like the hipster sort of. And it, but it was always kind of a cool neighborhood of cafes and bars, like away, uh, just enough away from Itaewon to not be Itaewon. And they would do the, the Hebanchan festivals, I think twice a year. They do it in May and maybe October. And this was in May. And I think Brian put a put a thing out online. I don't know. I, I, oh, I think it was in the article. He mentioned, oh, if any comics want to perform, contact me. So I messaged him. I emailed him. And I said, hey, I'm a comic down in Busan. Um, but I haven't been doing it because there's no comedians. You're doing comedy. And he's like, yeah, brother, come up. You know? I'll give you seven minutes. You got to be tight, man. Bring me your best <laughs> shit and stuff. So I get up there and sure enough, he's in this, Brian's in this hockey shirt, you know, just sitting there hulking outside this club. And there, there's hundreds or thousands of people on the streets. And I brought a few of my buddies from Busan. And so the show, he, he had like 10 or 15 comics going for a few hours in this like hamburger joint where the windows were open outside. And there's people in the street sitting there and it's loud and rowdy. And it, it, and I'm like, ah, oh, shit, this is gonna be a tough crowd just because it, it's raucous. So he puts me up a little late. So I go to the bar with my buddies and I, I down a couple beers to get a little courage because I'm nervous. I haven't done it in a long time. I don't know any of these people. I'm up in Seoul. I'm in the big city. And so I, then he's like, hey, I'm from Busan. Chris, don't give it up. And so I get up there, and, you know, squeeze my way through the crowd, and it's um, and I just uh. I just start slamming. I, I mean, I'm just basically yelling on the mic. It's so loud. Uh, but my jokes just start landing. Boom, 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 boom. I just emptied the clip and it was great. One of the best, set, my favorite sets ever. And it was exhilarating. And I just had the room and it was rowdy. They're laughing. And then afterward, Brian's like, yeah, man. And we're drinking. He's like, you and me, we're doing stuff. And since then, we were friends. He started organizing shows with, it was just... <laughs> Yeah, just like a couple months later, he's like, all right, let's do these comedy shows. So he would put himself as a headliner, like doing 30, 40 minutes. And there was a a, a Scottish kid named Ross Gardner, really funny yeah, guy. Yeah, I know, I know him. Yeah, I, yeah and, uh, but he was- Not, not everyone in Scotland knows each other, though. I should know. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, he's like, yeah, a little like elfen Glaswegian kid. Yeah, uh, he's very, he very pale. You know, he'd love it. He's yeah. the kind of guy that would get sunburned if a, a light bulb went on and all that, right? Yeah, yeah. He's kind of this uh, undercooked Scottish guy. And I'm, <laughs> Uh, you know, good looking guy, uh, but he was small and, and um, frail, but he would do these characters um, <laughs> that were really funny. You know, he had, he'd do voices, he'd do Americans and Scottish and all sorts of stuff. And, and, uh, and also he just had that really brash sort of really cutting like Frankie Boyle style it, it inspired Scottish sense of humor, which I love. And Brian loved it too. And so we, we did these shows at this wine bar, like, and Itaewon and Brian like pimped it like like he pretended like we were 
professional comedians. Brian was a hustler, man. We were English teachers who had cut our teeth doing comedy, but he pretended that we were pros and they had this huge poster out front with our face. They were charging like 35 bucks a, a ticket. You know, it was nuts. You know, it was a money grab. <laughs> And we did well, the that show. That's one for the little guys then, right? That's uh, Yeah, know. it was, and we packed the place and they were, you know, and I did okay. I think they were, the jury was out. We did like a Friday night show. They didn't like me very much. The Saturday night show was better. But I remember Ross Gardner, like one night there was a bunch of like American military guys there. Not, not the young guys, but kind of older guys. But Ross Gardner used to do a whole bit of just slamming on GIs, you know? He's like, you yeah, haven't noticed that GIs fuck the roughest girls in the world. And he's just talking. To, I wouldn't fuck a forest fire. <laughs> <laughs> Something like that. I mean, it's my, my bad Scottish accent, but he was, um, you know, he was just slamming on American soldiers. Uh, just, I'm just shitting on him really bad. Like, and during the set, one guy got up and tried to took a swing at him. You know, there's, you know, they had to eject him from the club. So what I did is I went down. I came back to Busan and then. I was planning on starting a, a thing, an open mic here to maybe cultivate some kind of um, a scene. But somebody else beat me to it. I said, somebody put an ad on the, the website here, uh, which was called Korea Bridge. Hey, I want to start a comedy open mic. So I, I contacted him and the two of us started one. And, it, and Brian came down and then we had a couple people from Busan. And it start, oh, the first year it was pretty slow. It was just a handful of people Sometimes we get a crowd, but usually it was pretty empty. But then it just started, we started getting more people and more people and more people. And by like, you know, three years in, we had, we had built this whole, you know, there, there was 10 or 12 people regularly doing it. And we'd always have new people. We were filling the place. We started going, taking it on the road, you know, going to different cities, going up to Seoul. And, and they started, they had a, started developing their scene and they'd come down here. And so suddenly we had this kind of, you know, English language expat comedy scene going in two two towns and we would cross pollinate and that went on for a long time until brian left and a few of the guys in seoul they ended up leaving and but most of the guys in busan stayed you know i mean some people left but the core of us who started that are still here because we all have university jobs and we don't want to leave <laughs> and is the is the scene still going i mean maybe not yep. in the last few months and pandemics and one thing and another but uh, other than that i mean were you performing quite recently yeah we just did one uh oh, just a little over a week ago uh not for this friday not last friday but the friday before we had our first our, our show is called the ha ha hole it's the uh, the name of our group and so uh you know i haven't been doing it too much i've been constantly writing but i went out and performed to kind of help boost morale in the in this uh this age of you know disease and um yeah it was it was cool and and they still do it in in seoul but it's not as vibrant as it was the expat scene but but it caught on with the koreans and now the koreans have a korean language comedy club that they at least up until again uh corona were doing regular shows my friend danny cho who's a korean american comedian was a professional comedian he used to come over from time to time yeah, he moved to Seoul and he was doing it professionally there, doing a lot of shows, doing some radio and TV stuff. So um, so that's the kind of what the cool thing with comedy is whatever happens with the expat scene is that it's caught on a bit 
with Koreans because before the idea of stand-up comedy was um, a bit foreign to Koreans. Yeah, they're, they're, they, there's nothing they did really kind like of, it. No, they do kind of silly challenges, a lot of slapstick and, and, um, and kind of funny group, group oriented comedy. That's kind of the way, you know, it's a group oriented society. So it, 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 you know, it's no surprise that their comedy tends to come from group dynamics. Usually they'll, they'll have a group of people doing something silly and one guy is made to look really foolish in front of the group and they all laugh at him. It's kind of this, you'll see it if you like shows like Muhan Dojun and Running Man. Ilbaki Il, one night, two days. These challenge shows with these groups of people running around doing very silly things. Um, some of it slapstick, some of it just almost like improv games. And but it usually would be kind of like how can deliberately deliberately setting somebody up to fail in front of the group, which <laughs> Koreans love. They just think that for them it's it's the most hilarious thing. But just somebody on a mic, maybe um just doing commentary is is not what they're used to here slowly but surely it's about just the drip effect and then uh, see how it goes maybe someone else will pick up the baton and run with it and uh you know one of the yeah i hope so yeah but i still don't know of any really really real stand-up in busan from the koreans only in seoul but you know busan is still i mean it's 3.5 million people. It's, it's a big, vibrant city, but culturally, it's just um, it's several steps behind the capital. You know, nothing really happens here until it happens there first. Right. What about when you were uh, when you took it out into the provinces, as it were? You know, when you said with Brian, because when I saw Brian, this is what we talked about a little bit. The yeah, I know Brian. One of his things was not so much the build it and they shall come, but he took it to them. He went to like. Yeah, Daejeon and Daegu and Pohang and well, you name it, Chungju, whatever it was, Gwangju, yeah, Gwangju, um, yeah. yeah, Pohang. We've done a lot of shows there because there's a guy, there's a Korean American guy who owns the bar there who loves comedy and he he's he supported it. Every time we have a road comic, we always stop there. He has a great great setup. Um, yeah, what's the other one? Um, Mokpo, which is down in the yeah, southwest corner of the country. Since I've been there, eh? did a couple crazy shows there. Um, yeah, those were always, sometimes that could be really fun, and sometimes it was torture, because, uh, you know, it depended on if the, whoever was promoting the show, how well they promoted it, you know, because one of two things would happen. Sometimes you'd roll in, the, the, like the good thing, which would happen is you'd come, maybe you'd come to Guangzhou and you'd go to the Speakeasy Bar, which is a great little venue there, and there was an Irish guy who used to run that and you'd you'd walk into the bar that night night of the show and there'd be posters up and people and everybody would be there for the show oh they're excited there's a comedy show they never get comedy in Guangzhou you know and so you might have like you know 60 or 70 people all there for the show he's been promoting it word of mouth they're excited they're there for the show and and you do the show and it goes off great but the other thing that could happen is some guy maybe there'd be a bar owner say sure we'll, we'll have a comedy show and he doesn't really know what that entails he just knows that, oh, just all the show and that's going to bring people in and I'll sell more drinks, but he doesn't promote it. And so you go in there and maybe, maybe even it's packed, but it's just people who, maybe it's their local bar that they just go to on a Friday night, just the punters. Right. And, and so you get up, Hey guys, we're going to have a comedy show. And they're like, what? <laughs> we're just, what are you, who are these assholes coming, <laughs> coming to our bar trying to be funny when we're just here having a drink on a winding down on a Friday night. We don't, we, we didn't ask for you to come 
entertain us, and they get a chip on their shoulder. Right, and it's they resent you for their private space almost. Yeah, yeah and the, and then they or and then if it's a big bar, maybe there's just a clump of like 15 people in the corner talking, and you know, and suddenly you're you're trying to do, you know, you're trying to punch a tsunami in the face. You know, just this you know, this wall of sound. You're like, hey guys, how you doing? Hey, could you be quiet? We're having jokes. And no one gives a shit. They just ignore you in the bar. The bar owner doesn't care. He's not on your side. Or, or then sometimes we used to get this thing too where, um, you know, women often like comedy. Women like to have a laugh. I mean, if you go to any comedy club, it's going to be a lot of women. And that's why, like, comedians who do misogynistic, like, anti-women jokes are stupid because so much of your crowd is going to be women and you want them on your side. To alienate them off the bat is just dumb. So we would sometimes, like, I remember I went to... Um, where was it? Um, not Daegu, one of the towns north of there, uh, Gumi, which is north of Daegu. And we, we, we've done a few shows there. And we went there with some of the guys from Seoul a few years back. And and there were people there for the show, and there were people who weren't there for the show. But we had like 30 people there for the show, and a lot of women. And they were sitting up front trying to listen to the show. But then I saw in back, there's like three or four dudes just checking us out. <laughs> who are these guys coming? And now the women are like paying attention to them and they just, I mean, they're actively and just giving us the, the shit eye all night at the bar, you know, like. It's, like, it's remember, a deliverance, right? You know, or the, you walk in the bar and the, the, the jukebox stops, you know. Yeah. Like, ugh. Yeah. So we, I remember we, we finished our beers and got out of there because there was a couple of big guys just looking at us with hate. And, Sorry. We just told jokes, you know. <laughs> you sort so, of, you know, yeah, I know. Well, one of the guys was Canadian. He had to apologize. The headliner. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry, eh? Yeah, leave it to him. <laughs> you know. You can follow Can't Find My Way Home on anchor.fm. Simply search for Can't Find My Way Home. On Instagram at can't.findmywayhome. On Facebook at Expat Music Pod. Spotify, Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts. And wherever you get your podcasts from, I'm pretty sure you'll find us there too. Until the next one, this is Craig saying cheers. <laughs>